Patrollers were able to select patients that were good candidates for this. You're kind of doing the jiggle. Jiggle the handle. Uh, we scuba diver, we love sharks. Oh, it's clearly worked five times. Yeah. A sauna is your friend. Welcome to the Wilderness Medicine Podcast with me, your host, Daryl Macias. Here, we get to talk to the movers and shakers of wilderness medicine and adventurers alike, giving you insight into the latest science and techniques related to wilderness medicine. It's September 2022, and the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast is now known as the Wilderness Medicine Podcast. That's as generic as you're going to get, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, but it's still going to be interesting and informative. So we're going to talk to Dr. Tiara Lynch and her study on the use of intranasal fentanyl by EMT basic providers. Then we'll journey down to New Caledonia, where Dr. Claude Maillot will talk about tiger shark attack bites. And then we're going to finish off with Dr. Russ Reinbolt, who is interviewed by our new fellow, Dr. Nicholas Weiss, on Russ's experience running one of the most difficult ultra marathons in the world, the Badwater 135, that goes from Death Valley to Mount Whitney. So let's get on it. Ski resorts aren't open yet, but if you're a gym rat, don't skip leg day. And don't be unaware that there are some ski resorts that can take care of your pain if you're not in shape, or you might be in shape, or it could take care of the pain of your patient should that patient fall or have some sort of a mishap on the mountain. Maybe the days are gone when the patient has to endure a bumpy ride going down a double diamond mogul with their dislocated shoulder. As that dislocated shoulder flails vivaciously in the air. And believe me, I've taken people down at the toboggan and I've actually been able to reduce people's dislocated shoulder in situ because it's very painful. And I'm sure that happens in many places still. Well, an EMT basic nowadays could actually take care of your pain, not by relocating it necessarily, although there are special skills for wilderness EMTs to be able to do that. But in Taos, New Mexico, those people who are injured no longer have to endure that roller coaster ride. And so with me to discuss this paper here in September, intranasal fentanyl for on-the-hill analgesia by Ski Patrol is our first author, Tierra Lynch. Tierra, tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all, for our audience, and then maybe I'll tell a little story after. All right. Hi, Daryl. Thanks so much for having me on here. Um, so I'm from Taos originally, um, now an emergency medicine resident at the University of Utah. And I got to work really closely with the Taos Ski Patrol when I worked at Mogul Medical, which is the clinic at the base of Taos Ski Valley. And I was really honored to get to work on this project and really showcase the really awesome work that they're doing out there. Here's a side note about Tierra. Her mother, Linda, and I conceived the idea of a wilderness medicine rotation over 20 years ago at our emergency department. And now, Tierra, Linda's daughter, is in this podcast. (laughs) 
But enough of that. Back to the interview. Are you still skiing much? You were. You're you're on the ski team, right? I did. Did some ski racing as a kid, and um, now just more enjoying the powder skiing at Alta and Snowbird here. Well, in your paper, I was well. What I'm wondering first is, could you actually describe for some of the people who aren't familiar with ski patrol rescue operations, what a typical rescue for someone who would need transport down to the clinic downhill, in this case, Mogul Medical Clinic, which is the clinic in Towski Valley, and just kind of give us an idea of what that entails, what it's like, how long it takes to get somebody down. So, you know, patient presents, say they have a dislocated shoulder or fractured femur or something, ski patrol will arrive Um, And they'll face a pretty long extrication at times, you know, if they need a technical rescue from being, um, you know, on cliffed area, somewhere high up on the mountain, it could be over an hour. And then a more average time would be maybe about 15 minutes. But still, they're going to face this long, bumpy ride down the mountain until they get to the base. It's also very rare to get pain control at ski areas. Um, Really, the only ski areas that give pain control are those that have paramedics. And most patrollers are only like an EMT basic or OEC certified volunteer patrollers that can't give any medications at all. And some local protocols might even limit the like advanced practice of a paramedic patroller too, to not be able to give medications. So in Taos, before we started our study, they were able to give intramuscular morphine on the hill, but this had to be given by a paramedic, which was, you know, rare to have someone on. And then that happened pretty infrequently, like maybe five to seven times a year. And there were some challenges that I am morphine presented compared to, you know, other medications that made it like not ideal for wilderness rescuers to use. It has, um, you know, imagine like trying to draw up um, um, like morphine into a syringe on like the side of a steep mountain and you have, you know, your gloves on, the wind is blowing. So there's needle stick risk. You have to expose your patient so they can, there's risk for hypothermia for them. Um, And then there's slower onset of morphine and then also pretty unpredictable absorption in like a cold vasoconstricted limb. So there's some challenges that even, you know, I am morphine presented. Obviously, yeah, to give I am morphine, you have to expose the patient. So that's a hypothermia risk. You've got issues with possibly getting stuck with a needle or something like that. There's dosing errors. And I'm sure that you take the gloves off and you're trying to draw up a syringe of medication you're kind of doing the jiggle. If the most common phrase heard in your house is somebody go jiggle the handle, <laughs> you might be a redneck. So I'm sure that there's been a lot of errors. And of course, in the United States, at least, we tend not to have physicians on patrol. I know your mom would patrol and all that and your dad. But aside from that, they're anomalies. Most of us in the U.S., you know, we're lucky to get an EMT basic on the on the hill. So that's pretty interesting. And some of the challenges that you guys actually were able to address at the Mogul Medical Clinic. From your study on intranasal fentanyl, a retrospective review of some of the patient charts that you guys had at the Mogul Medical Clinic. And it sounds like your group found a better way to diminish pain on the hill rather than wait until transport to the ski clinic or even using some of these old methodologies like intramuscular morphine. Now, if you could tell us what you set out to examine with this paper and how did you all manage to allow EMT basics to be able to give intranasal fentanyl in the first place? 
Um, the Towski Patrol applied for an EMS special skills protocol from the New Mexico um, EMS Bureau, and that allowed EMT basics to be able to give IN fentanyl following a standardized protocol uh, with online medical control. So we chose IN fentanyl because it's rapid onset. It's non-invasive. So yeah, no needle stick risk. Like we talked about, they come in pre-filled syringes um, and no exposure of the patient. So in our study, what we looked at was the decrease in patient pain from the initial pain score that the patrollers elicited from the patient um, at like zero minutes. And then we looked at their reported pain scores at five, 10, and 15 minutes afterwards. And we looked to see if there was a statistically and a clinically significant decrease in their pain scores at all those time intervals. And we also assessed for any um, adverse events or like use of naloxone. You've mentioned in the paper that there are some studies out of this country, probably in Europe, that actually it has been shown that intranasal fentanyl actually works. It decreases pain scores pretty significantly, like it might decrease pain scores up to like three points or something like that. So you use the scale, a scale of one to 10, which is kind of a common Likert scale to demonstrate the efficacy. So you have these EMT basics that normally aren't allowed, at least in the United States, to normally give narcotics. You got this special skills. And for those of you listening in New Mexico, the special skills are a lot easier to obtain for certain situations since we're a rural state as compared to, let's say, California or something like that. So that's uh, really nice to be able to use that strength to be able to do that. And then you're able to talk about the pain or the lack of pain that you were able to quantify it. First, what I'd like to ask is, let's talk a little bit about the protocol, how you went about once these EMT basics were trained, what happened thereafter? What was the protocol? You get a call, somebody's got maybe a busted leg or something like that. What happened in that interval? Yeah, exactly. So patrollers were able to select patients that were good candidates for this. And the criteria they used for that was severe pain. So they use, you know, again, using the zero to 10 scale, you know, so severe pain being seven out of 10 or greater and having no contraindications to receiving opioids or intranasal medications. Um, so that might be like decreased mental status or something like that, allergy to opioids. Then they would call down on the radio to the provider in the base clinic in Mogul Medical and request to administer a standardized dose of fentanyl. And then they would um, administer that using the mucosal atomizer device. For our clinic, we used 50 microgram per milliliter universal concentration of fentanyl and then split the dose into half cc aliquots per nostril. So you'd have to alternate several times for most doses. And we used a standardized dosing regimen in pounds to help us decrease dosing errors on the hill and also to increase scene time for patrollers. And so, for example, the ideal dose of intranasal fentanyl is one to two micrograms per kilogram. So, for example, like a patient, you know, a standard patient weighing around 140 pounds would get a dose of 100 micrograms or two cc's. So you would have to split that a couple of times per nostril for good absorption. And you guys aren't using metric yet. Oh my goodness. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> Not there. Well, patients are going to tell you your, their weight in pounds. So how did you do the math? <laughs> right. Do the math. How did you guys figure, do people just kind of guesstimate if the patient didn't know how much they weigh, you just kind of guesstimate their weight roughly? Yes, there would be a rough estimation. And there was pretty, um, there was just, you know, dose weight ranges that would give certain doses. Most patients would get a hundred microgram dose. 
So what you would do is basically, you know, figure out what the chief complaint is, some of the patient's identifying information you would figure out, all right, this person weighs X amount of pounds. And it sounds like there was actually two people involved that would do this closed loop communication so that there would be no obvious errors with dosing or anything else, obviously making sure they didn't have any untoward previous reactions to fentanyl or opiates. And then Narcan, naloxone was available. Did you ever have to use Narcan? No, there was never any adverse events that happened and naloxone was never used. And then you had your syringe, you attached an atomizer, which is really slick. After that, you would have the patient lay their head back slightly, and then you would put fentanyl in either nostril. Now, what if they had a lot of boogers or something? I mean, that does happen. People get, you know, snot when they ski and it's cold. I mean, did you guys have them blow their nose or you just go for it? Yeah. So that's a great point. You know, anything that's obstructing the nostrils will impact how much can be absorbed. So, you know, I believe a patient could blow their nose that would help them absorb better. Um, and if not, I think just doing a repeat dose later was helpful. Um, yeah. So definitely one big challenge that we found to getting good analgesia was like how the technique, um, and the, how much volume was put into each nostril. So, for the like really good atomizing technique, patrollers had to use like very rapid, firm presses on the syringe to get good fine mist. And we actually, they would practice with saline flushes and the, the atomizer devices to just get a good fine mist there. And then really important to do, you know, no more than half a cc per nostril, no, no more, more than, than half, half a, a cc, cc per nostril, nostril. because the the nasal mucosa is very volume limited. And some studies even cite less volume, like 0.15 cc's being the limit of what you can do. So important to really alternate nares. It's interesting. So is that all you had was fentanyl? Like for instance, I carry ketamine. You can give that intranasally. There's other options. I mean, just use ibuprofen on the ski hill. Has that been something that you guys have utilized previously? Um, what made you decide fentanyl? So fentanyl was rapid onset and there's a lot of studies showing really good at like equivalent efficacy to morphine and other opioids, you know, ibuprofen and some of those others um, are going to take time to have onset. And so we didn't use any other medications on the hill. They might get those in the clinic. And then we also had naloxone available. You know, some, some places actually do use sufentanil or higher concentration fentanyls though, greater than the 50 uh, micrograms per milliliter. And that helps with some of the volume limitations we were talking about. Nice thing about fentanyl compared to some of these other analgesics, talk about lipophilicity. Fentanyl goes to the brain really easily. Hence the idea of lipophilicity. So anybody out there interested in these certain medications, fentanyl, I think is ideal because of its lipophilicity. Lipophilicity. So you have this pain score. And you administered, from what I understand, people who had a pain score greater than seven on the one to 10 scale, right? So what was the initial pain score? How much improvement did you see at, let's say, times five, 10, and 15 minutes? What happened? And then we can talk about things such as did severity of the injury, did the age of the patient, sex of the patient matter? 
Yeah, exactly. So we found like the average initial pain score patients presented with was around 8.6 on plus or minus 1.5. And we did find a clinically and statistically significant decrease in those pain scores at all the time intervals. Um, So the literature cites a clinically significant decrease is over 1.8. And that's about what a patient would notice is like a meaningful decrease in their pain. And we found at five minutes, a decrease of 1.8, 2.4 at 10 minutes and a decrease of 2.9 at 15 minutes. And we found no adverse events. We didn't find any difference for confounding factors like age or sex or the weight-based dose that was given. But we did find that the severity of the initial pain score did influence the final pain score. So the larger um, the patient's pain was initially, the larger relief the patient noticed, um, which is like interesting finding and noted elsewhere in the literature too. One thing that I noticed that came up was that there was some, I guess I wouldn't say inaccurate dosing, but women and children tended to get maybe overdosed or underdosed a little bit. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So we didn't find any statistical significance with those findings, but women and children were, you know, likely to not get the proper weight-based dose or, and so they showed actually like sometimes a a more improved dose or in response. Did any of the patients that you all studied need rescue medications such as more intranasal fentanyl or morphine? Yeah. So repeat doses of morphine or fentanyl were allowed under the protocol. It happened infrequently, like less than 10% of patients got a repeat dose. Um, the standardized dosing regimen likely underdoses most of the patients, you know, coupled with the volume limitations um, that we talked about earlier. Repeat dosing is actually very important to getting good pain control if a patient doesn't show a really good initial response. And in the patients that we studied, all of those who received a rescue dose had no adverse events and no difference in the final pain score at 15 minutes. So they eventually got equivalent relief to patients who responded well to a single dose. So based on this study, how has the approach to pain management on the hill changed over in Tau Ski Valley? And how do you think other ski programs and organizations could use this study? So not only is on the hill analgesia used way more frequently by Tau Ski Patrol now, so it's maybe around 30 patients per year will get something on the hill. But I think that Tau Ski Patrol is really pushing the envelope of like the expectations for pre-hospital care um, and really like providing high quality care to their patients. I think this protocol is something that other ski patrols or wilderness or pre-hospital rescue groups could adapt um, and apply for a similar state permit our protocol. And like we talked about, New Mexico is, you know, special in the protocols. They enable their more rural EMS systems to provide. But I think it's, um, you know, having more literature like this, more studies on the barriers to implementing similar protocols in other rescue groups would be very important. Are you aware that Utah has a similar protocol? Not when I last looked and none of the ski patrols, um, when I was looking through, were able to give medications on the hill. Fascinating. Well, I think this study is definitely going to help with regard to changing protocols for other ski resorts. And I think people will be really happy about that. And it sounds like, yeah, it was safe. There were no adverse events. The EMT basics got the proper training and all that. It takes, you know, obviously an active medical director for that, but I'm sure that these ski areas in the Western United States have very active medical direction. So I think, I think it's great here. Congratulations on this. And Yeah. If you're a ski patrol medical director, 
they can contact Tiara. Send emails your way if there's any questions. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and definitely want to say a big thank you to everyone who helped with this paper. It was a big team effort. So yeah, thank you to Quigley Peterson, who was the medical director of Mobile Medical at the time, Peter Callis and Sarah Schlein, um, and of course, like Towski Patrol and Mobile Medical staff, like true leaders for yeah improving patient care in the backcountry. Tiger shark attack. Folks, we're leaving the ski resorts. We're all gonna go down to the ocean. In fact, let's travel to the South Pacific, to a place called New Caledonia, where we will talk to Dr. Claude Mayu, who discusses a case report of a tiger shark attack on a scuba diver in this month's journal. Cousteau has commissioned the vessel Pilu Pilu, now approaching the tropical island of New Caledonia. Claude, first tell us, what do you do down in New Caledonia? Oh, uh, I don't feel myself down in New Caledonia. Uh, uh, at the moment, I'm working as a GP. Uh, previously, I've been an emergency physician and I've been a forensic uh, doctor as well. And I do some uh, diving medicine as well. So, Let's talk about the case report. And then, if we can, let us discuss shark attacks worldwide. Please tell us about the tiger shark attack that bit the diver in our case report. And what do you think provoked this? So it's considered as an unprovoked shark attacks. So we consider there was no reason why the shark attacked the diver. The only Contributing factor I have found is that the scuba diver was not sticking to the coral wall and was swimming in, in the blue. So uh, she couldn't see the shark coming. So the shark come by from the bottom and from back. So she couldn't spot the shark before he attacked. And it was a very sudden attack. It just came, bite, and went away. Unprovoked. So she was, yeah, I guess in a coral reef wall, and then it was really muddy, boop, uh, very murky water where... Not at all, not at not all. Not at all. Clear not water, all. clear water. Clear water. So what we used to, what we used to say about shark attacks uh, is uh, avoid mud, muddy waters, avoid... Uh, be in the water at night or at uh, sunshine. Uh, it doesn't work 100% in New Caledonia because most of the attacks we have here in New Caledonia, they happen in very clear water or in rather clear water and in a daytime. So mm. what is special is this attack happened with a very good visibility. I can't remember which it was exactly, but it was a fair visibility. And there were no special circumstances to explain the attack. To summarize so far, this was an unprovoked shark attack against the scuba diver. As we will discuss a little later, this was unusual. 
Sharks usually attack in turbid water or during dusk or dawn hours when sharks feed. In this case, it was clear water with good visibility during the daytime and the shark attacked the scuba diver from below. This event also happened in open water. Perhaps diving near a coral reef versus open water could have been safer for this individual. This was the only potential contributing factor to the attack, according to Dr. Mayu. It wasn't any coral reef, and it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. And I believe that the three major sharks that we worry about with attacks would be the tiger shark, which is discussed in the case. There's also the bull shark, or I think you call it bulldog shark, and then the great white shark. That's right. Here in New Caledonia, uh, most of the attacks uh, are uh, attributed to the to tiger shark. Second is the, the bull shark, and we have very few attacks attributed to the white pointer, the great white, because it is not very common in our seas. We know that great white shark that cross uh, New Caledonia waters, uh, especially at winter time. The, the species we are really present in New Caledonia, dangerous species is tiger shark and bull shark. And considering the, the, the death rate, most of the lethal attacks, attacks we have in New Caledonia are from the tiger shark. Well, I have here, I have my first aid kit, Le Trousseau Medical, and I have my tourniquet, Le Garot. And it doesn't sound like in this case, a tourniquet would have been very helpful because the injury was high up on the gluteal region. Now, in, right. yeah, do diving companies carry tourniquets? In their no, tourniquets? they do. No, no, no oh, they no. don't because, because, uh, a shark attack on a scuba diver in New Caledonia, but anyway, worldwide, is a, is a very, very unusual event. Is the reason why it has been published. So it's a very unusual. So it's a kind of a risk the dive centers don't have to deal with. So we shouldn't take some materials when they some gear they, they need to use. Dive centers, on the other hand, they all have uh, VHF radio on board. And that's, that is a crucial point. Uh, when shark attack occur, of course, first aid is, uh, is crucial. But launching the alert is crucial as well. And of course, professional dive tools, they have the HF, but on the other hand, many people in uh, South Pacific Ocean in New Caledonia, they don't have the HF on board. And that's a shame. The sharks mostly likely to bite are bull sharks and tiger sharks in New Caledonia, which is west of Australia. Great white shark attacks are also significant, but they may be more frequent out in North America, but not so much in New Caledonia. Well, we then went on to discuss the use of tourniquets, which many dive first aid kits surprisingly do not carry. Oxygen, roger that. But 
looking at the Divers Alert Network website, you can purchase a significantly large and pricey emergency response kit that contains a complete guide to marine medicine, triple antibiotics, aspirin, diphenhydramine, ibuprofen, acetaminophen or paracetamol, meclizine, antacid, benzalkonium wipes, povidone iodine, insects, thing relief wipe, sunburn lidocaine, a large bandage, and some fingertip bandages, and of course, that oxygen tank with a regulator and a mask. Well, a tourniquet as well as a hemostatic bandage and maybe some intramuscular epi would make great addition to a kit like this. Nespa? What do you think? There's a tourniquet on the market, self-described as a more ideal tourniquet for underwater use, and I won't tell you the name because it's pretty proprietary, but Supposedly, most tourniquets supposedly cannot withstand the harsh marine environment, according to this one manufacturer. Now, I don't know if I believe this, and at this time, I can't find any information substantiating the superiority of this one product. I mean, look, don't tourniquets have to be pretty inelastic in the first place, and how long would you need to keep a tourniquet on? It would be an interesting research study nonetheless, and of course, in this particular case, a tourniquet would not have been useful. Another important first aid piece of equipment that we discussed would be communications. Dr. Mayo discusses the need for VHF radios, which are not universally carried. It would be nice to have had some type of communication on all of our dive boats to be able to give a heads up to EMS, helicopter EMS, and or an accepting facility. So this is more worldwide. This may not pertain to your particular dive site, but just Look for that VHF radio if you're going out on a dive boat. With any shark attack, what we would really worry about is hemorrhage, making sure obviously the patient doesn't drown, so we have to take the patient out of the water, onto the boat or wherever, and then control hemorrhage. And are you aware of anything that we could do besides call the paramedics or SAMU or the resuscitation? It doesn't sound like there's much that we could actually do in the dive boat or on the beach, except take care of these simple issues and hope. No, there is nothing else to do. Uh, it's uh, initial first aid and call the emergency services. We have in New Caledonia some uh, rescue services, maritime, and uh, in this case, a helicopter was sent from the hospital to uh, to fetch the victim. So control the, the bleeding and send the alert. Only two things. Hmm. This uh, individual gets to the local medical center in Numea, I'm assuming, less than one hour after being bitten, which is a pretty good scene time. Hemorrhagic shock. She got crystalloid infusion, morphine and ketamine, which is really good, midazolam, oxygen and whatnot. And she got two units of packed red cells, and uh, I believe she got some antibiotics as well. Are you aware, Claude, or are there any important treatment issues that you wish to talk about besides the normal ABCs? No, no, there is nothing else. It's, uh, it's an emergency. It's uh, uh, taking care of an hemorrhagic shock. So... It's all uh, job for uh, emergency teams. Right. And then you went on to get a CT arteriogram. Then she would 
she didn't need any decompression. Uh, decompression stuff wasn't needed. No. Because she wasn't. wasn't right. Because right. she just went in, into a water. Uh, she reached uh, 30 and so on meters depth. And she was beaten at the same time she reached the bottom. So she, she had, considering the, the tables we use here, there was no need for any uh, recuperation. Later, she went to uh, hyperbaric uh, oxygen therapy in order to help the healing of the woman, but this is another story. The patient wasn't in the water long enough to merit a decompression stop, which basically allows off-gassing of nitrogen from the body. Remember that in scuba diving? Compressed air is inhaled, unless you're breathing some mix. For regular compressed air, it's still 21% oxygen, with the rest being, of course, nitrogen. But being compressed, more nitrogen will get absorbed in the body per unit time compared to breathing nitrogen at regular sea level. Remember that the deeper you go, the more air gets compressed. And if you take in more nitrogen than you can get rid of, you get to a point where you're saturated. And if you decompress yourself by going up to the surface too quickly, the nitrogen that is dissolved in the tissues comes out in the blood, forming bubbles, and these bubbles can cause decompression illness. Look, that's not a good thing, and this is a quick and dirty explanation, but I think you understand. To mitigate this phenomenon, divers might use something called a decompression stop, which is something that, of course, we won't be able to discuss here at this time, but it's basically a rest stop at certain depths in order to facilitate the off-gassing process and to hopefully slowly desaturate oneself. Hyperbaric oxygen, that's usually indicated for those who have suffered a decompression sickness of some sort. Now, there are off-label uses of hyperbaric oxygen, which include facilitating wound healing, which was the reason that the patient underwent hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Late in the afternoon, Pilu Pilu continues down the New Caledonia Lagoon. Many of us in the outdoor industry, wilderness medicine, we say prevention is key. Prevention is key. And it seems like shark attacks have increased over the years. From another paper that you wrote, it looks like things have doubled or so. In fact, I think there was um, one instance where you had a time period between 1980 to 1999, 15 attacks, and then 2000 to 2019, 42 attacks. And you talk about besides the divers, there's those who uh, apnea, their breath holders, when they look for lobster, um, there's spear fishermen, whatnot, but there's also interesting things, surfers, kite surfing, stand-up paddleboard. What do you think is causing the increase in these shark encounters? And how can a swimmer, a surfer, or a scuba diver prevent such encounters? So first, we don't have any idea uh, of the reason why shark attacks uh, are increasing worldwide. Many theories we have. Some people say maybe global warming, change in shark behaviors, uh, decrease in uh, fishes, but actually nobody knows why this happens. Well, prevention is a very difficult matter 
because it really depends on what you are doing in the water. Considering scuba divers, well, there is no prevention because of, it's a very, very, very unusual haven. So uh, in our waters, in our tropical waters, uh, we scuba diver, we love sharks and we love diving with sharks. And we are the best encounters we, we, you can do in the water is sharks, a lot of big sharks. So we are not scared about sharks because usually we don't have any accident. We scuba divers, we are not at risk uh, of shark attacks. So prevention for scuba divers is of course, don't do any shark feeding. Shark feeding scuba diving, yes, it has to be said because some people still do. You should avoid cracking a water bottle, you know, the plastic water bottle half filled. You crack it in, you crack it in, inside the water. It makes a noise that attracts sharks. So some divers, they have a small bottle in, uh, with them and they crack it. Over sharks come closer. You should not do that because sometimes you can you can get really big sharks and coming really close. So don't crack any borders. Hmm. Some people should use if they want. There are some uh, uh, shark deterrents, uh, electric shark deterrents you can put on your tank. But I don't know anyone in recreational scuba diving who use that in New Caledonia. Some professional scuba divers, they use shark deterrents because they uh, dive in very, very muddy waters, fully filled up with bull sharks. So we have to be careful. But for recreational scuba diving, nothing special. Well, for spearfishing, well, if you don't want to face shark attacks, you do anything else. Uh, golf is good. Uh, golf is good. <laughs> climbing, I don't know. For the other people in the water, there is few to do about prevention. Swimmers, don't go at night. Don't go uh, when the visibility is full. Don't go swim into muddy waters, of course. People who uh, make, uh, who enjoy um, seawater sports like uh, surfing, windsurfing, and so on, they have to be, to be very aware of there is a risk. So they take it, they don't take it. But there is nothing to avoid an attack except avoiding muddy waters that uh, we had uh, last year a uh, dramatic accident with uh, Beth, uh, who was uh, deadly beaten close to a beach of a, a, a tiny islet just in front of Numea. So had taken no risk. 
except he was in the water. So it is the reason why prevention is a, is a very difficult concept. If you are attacked by a shark, do you have any advice on how to stop an aggressive shark attack? Probably not. Yeah, so the first, of course, is uh, get out of the water as quickly as you can. But uh, yeah, a few advices are face the shark. If you can, keep eye contact with the shark and make the shark believe that you will fight. And if he attacks, fight. Uh, fight to the last time. Because many, uh, we have uh, some uh, stories here about, uh, I remember especially one, it was a spearfisher. He was attacked by a big tiger shark. He was beaten on the leg. And if he fought at the last minute, when his leg was uh, in, in the mouth of a shark, he reached with his thumb the shark eyes and the shark opened his mouth. So you have to fight. Of course, the first thing is to grab any kind of tool you can take to push back the shark. Sometimes even with the hand, it is not opening his mouth. You can push a shark or push with feet and you can save time and you can make the shark consider again before biting you. So the, the advice is don't run away, turning back to the shark in panic. Mm. This doesn't work because the shark would, of course, would grab your legs. I think if you keep on facing the shark, if you have a coral reef, you always have a coral reef, uh, keep back to a coral. If you are in open water, if you're two people, who put uh, the two people back to back mm. and two sharks uh, away. So the advice is never give up and always send the message to the shark. You are not an easy prey. You, you me, we are big in the water. So we are big prey. So they may think about it and you're in case you are prey because all, all shark attacks are not uh, for feeding. Uh, they may be for any other reasons. So you have to, to make the shark consider that, okay, it might be dangerous. So it may think about it and give up the attack. Face the coral reef because the coral reef is a back so the shark won't come from the back you have two people which you should have you basically go back to back and you're always facing the shark your partner is facing the shark and yeah fight 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 poke them yeah grab the eyes grab the gills i'm sure that the sharks don't like that so it sounds like there are 
certain chances of being attacked, but for scuba divers, the chances of a shark attack are not as high as say windsurfing or kite surfing or whatnot. I know the article talked about spear fishermen being being at, at some risk. Does menstruation increase the chances to be attacked if you're a menstruating female? I would say no, that doesn't make sense. Is that actually what sharks go, are going for? Are they actually attracted by blood? Or is that just a saga, some kind of story you tell little kids to scare them? The official answer is no. For any statistics, I think uh, the uh, Florida's Museum International Shark Attack File is, an, is a very uh, good source of information. Their website is very good. And all the, the statistics you want worldwide, because I'm, I can give you the New Caledonian ones at worldwide statistics are on the ISAF file. What he's referring to is the International Shark Attack File. Just Google it and you'll find the statistics for many of the things that we're talking about. International shock attack file uh, managers and they say no menstruation class are not considered at risk. Well, menstruation doesn't appear to be a risk factor according to the experts. Feeding fish chum is not a good idea. Those on certain paddle boards might be at an increased risk for shark attacks and erratic swimming or having animals such as your pet dog swim with you in the water can also be a risk factor. Based on some evidence, windsurfing could also pose a risk because of the slapping of the board onto the surface of the water. Now taking off shiny jewelry is probably overall a good idea, not only for sharks, but also so that barracudas are not attracted to your shiny jewelry. Electromagnetic devices are fairly inconsistent in their application and action, and according to the literature, they may only be good if the shark is a meter away from the extremity or the dive tank that is carrying the device. And of course, yep, you guessed well, these devices are therefore not very reliable. Chemical deterrents, also very unreliable. And these chemicals can wash off rather quickly in the water, as you might have already figured out. Poking and fighting a shark, of course, is probably the best way to fend off a shark or using some other device. And if you have dynamite, that could be a really good deterrent, but throwing dynamite in a shark's mouth is probably not going to work too well. I would to finish pointing that uh, shark attacks on scuba divers are very, very unusual events. So I think it's the best way to be in the water is with a, a scuba gear. The risk is really, really low, especially in tropical waters where the encounters of, uh, with the, the great white uh, shark are very scarce. As the great white is uh, the, 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 more, the most dangerous shark for scuba divers, but unfortunately, we in New Caledonia have very few. I, I, I have a close encounter with a great white a few months ago in scuba diving, 
well, it was fine. Um, uh, so even with this one, uh, encounter doesn't mean attack. Claude, bon vacances. Daryl, thank you for your invitation. It was very nice to, to talk with you. So, Victoria, you're one of the uh, media, you're the media guru of Bad Water. <laughs> I'm one of the media people. <laughs> All right. So you came out here one time. And this is my fourth year. Okay. So the first time, what was it like to be out here in this environment? It was the, it felt like I was in an oven. It was 127 degrees. I think it might have been a course record for heat. And I just had so much trouble. I was here for all three start waves, 8, 9, 30, 11. And any sudden movement, like I felt if I moved quickly, I might just black out. And it was like, I felt really uneasy wow. with, with moving. And then what did you do now for training? Um, since the summer started, I live in Brooklyn, New York. Uh -huh. I haven't been turning on my air conditioning. I've just been sitting in my hot apartment. And when I get slightly uncomfortable, I'll just turn on a light fan just to get the air moving. But and you've been training like for a, a month. Box. Wow. Yeah, for, for the best month, I guess it would be, yeah. And how do you feel now? Great. It's a little sweat. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks. So I'm a busy executive, Nick. I mean, I got things to do, people to see, planes to catch. And, you know, I only have time to maybe acclimatize in a sauna 180, 185 degrees for about 10 minutes once a week. And I want to do hit therapy. I want to hit it hard, intense. Is that going to help me acclimate to the heat? That's a good question, Daryl, and you would think that, yes, in fact, it would. However, uh, in a recent meta-analysis that's come out on heat shock proteins by Nava uh, et al. here actually at the University of New Mexico, established no correlation actually between intensity of exercise and expression of uh, heat shock protein 70. The thing that they did find after looking at 12 different studies is there is a correlation between duration of heat exposure and heat acclimatization. Um, duration does increase the expression of uh, heat shock protein 70 though. So kind of like altitude acclimatization, I've got to spend time in the mountains, I'm going to have to spend time in the heat. There's no shortcuts. And I understand that people have been doing maybe sauna therapy for 30 minutes, maybe four times a week for at least a couple weeks. And yep. they do really well in the heat and they can actually keep their heat acclimation for up to a month once they've quit. That's exactly. pretty interesting. All right. It is. Sure. Well, let's get to that race, man. We got things right. to do, people to see, planes to hopefully not catch. Boom. It's time for bad water. Hey, Nick. Hey, How Darryl. are you doing? I am doing well. How about yourself? Well, I'll tell you what. Right now, the temperature in Albuquerque is in the 80s, low 80s. But oh, nice. just a few weeks ago, we were in 124, 127 degree weather out in Death Valley. Bad water 135. And we managed to make a few friends along the way. You have a friend who's... I uh, do. Yeah, tell I us. I do have a friend. And I... Luckily, was able to speak with him right after finishing for the fifth time, might I mention, Badwater, Dr. Russ Reinbold. Russ, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. We are as well. And you are a true triple threat in every sense of the phrase, Russ. You are a practicing ER doc. In a former life, you were an exercise physiologist. And most pertinent to this show, you're a five-time finisher of the Badwater Ultramarathon, the 135-mile foot race through Death Valley. 
you are a family man and you currently reside in Southern California and do work kind of all over the place. Welcome to the show, the one and only Ultra Doc, Russ Reinbold. Man, that's, that's a pretty nice introduction. I hope I can rise up to the, to the expectations. Oh, I think you'll, I think you'll rise to the heat, uh, Dr. Reinbold. So I thought you were a perfect guest for this show because not only do you talk the talk when it comes to heat illness, being a practicing ER doc, but you walk the walk with some of the best ultra marathoners out there running races like the Badwater and finishing that race in extreme heat conditions. You certainly don't need to give away any trade secrets. I know you hold some things close to your chest as most uh, ultra marathoners do. But even the tip of the iceberg with a guy like yourself would be more than enough for some common runners and uh, heat illness enthusiasts like ourselves. So kind of start things off, walk us through some of your heat training uh, regimen for an endurance event like Badwater 135. A sauna is your friend. I spent a lot of time in the sauna as hot as I can for as long as I can, as often as I can. I would try to do it every day for like the two weeks up to the race, uh, up until about maybe three days before the race, because it takes a lot out of me. I don't, you know, I don't work out in the sauna. I just expose myself to it. Um, I, I was actually fi- able to find a, a dry sauna where the temperature was 210. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just, it felt like a gas chamber. I felt like I was going to come out just as a, 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 like liquid, what do they call that? Liquefaction necrosis. Like just, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. And I was just, I would hide, I would drink so much water and take salt tablets during the session. And then for like four hours afterwards, but yeah, so it's, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to an extreme race like this, it's like studying for a test. You can't have any weaknesses. You know, you gotta, I mean, studying for your boards. I mean, you gotta know, you know, everything. You can't have any weaknesses. So, you know, not only does it obviously have to do heat training, but you have to be incredibly fit to, to do well in a hot weather race. And you have to have your fluid electrolyte nutrition down. You have to have your crew down. You have to have, you know, physically strong, you know, mechanically, um, logistics. I mean, all that stuff. So, but specifically with regards to heat training, I found that the more often I do it, and I think you mentioned something about me that also, I guess there's research that you have to do it often, not just super hot for like a couple sessions and think that's going to carry you through the race. I, I found that the more often I've, I've been doing it, I've done, I've done this race six times. I got five finishes and I got it down now. I've got it down. And that is at least a half an hour, at least 10 times up until a few days before the race, I think is sufficient and, and uh, we'll get you, get you through. Okay. Are you doing your runs and then immediately going into the sauna or are you taking a rest interval? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, extremely difficult for me to do a high quality workout and then go into the sauna because the sauna training just by itself is such such a stress on the cardiovascular system. I uh, rarely do more than a a one hour workout prior to a sauna session. So you're doing your long runs weeks before and then leading up a few weeks before the event, then you're instituting sauna therapy since you're only working out an hour on a given day, or maybe you're taking multiple runs during the day. No, no, I only tr- uh, run once a day. You know, our, our schedules are so limited that, you know, we don't have the luxury of doing a morning workout and a, an afternoon workout. I'm married. I got kids, you know, and all that other stuff. So, but yeah, you're right. I don't do any really high volume, high intensity workouts after three weeks before the race. You know, as you, you've probably heard that it's, it's better to be, 
10% undertrained, then 10% overtrained going into a race. You know, you don't want to be taught, you know, beat up. You want to be like a horse in, a, in the corral before the before they open the gate. You want to be just bursting with fitness, bursting with energy before a race. And then also I wanted to mention, I know that I'm heat acclimated when if I'm sitting on the couch watching TV and I get chilled, I start feeling cold. Then I know that I'm heat trained. And that has happened like clockwork every single time before bad water right towards the end of my sessions. I mean, I'll talk to my wife and say, honey, did you turn the AC on or something? Why is it cold in here? I actually have like goosebumps and I know, damn, yes, I'm heat acclimated. I'm ready to go. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, that is the gold standard right there. Oh that is it. That's the metric. That's, That's what we're awesome. shooting for. I Darryl. had that last yeah. night when I worked in the PZD. I was cold. <laughs> That's awesome. And I've been yeah. heat training too. I love it. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. So uh, Daryl and I were talking about a paper on heat shock proteins not too long ago. Um, Actually, it was a meta-analysis done here at our program, University of New Mexico, Go Lobos. But it sounds like what they kind of found correlates with what you're mentioning as as well, is that there's finding that there's more upregulation with heat shock proteins based on frequency of heat acclimatization in days versus other things such as exercise intensity, duration of time. Um, getting heat acclimated on a given day and maximum core temperature. Do you think that there's anything else kind of important, at least that's impacted your training as far as some of those other variables go? Unfortunately, I really don't have anything, any strong enlightening comment on that. I am fascinated by this, these entities of heat shock proteins. I think that's going to be a new frontier in, uh, in extreme sports physiology. Um, I think that, you know, we're just touching upon it. I know it's, they've been around a while. They were discovered years and years ago, but I think this might be a box that has some magic, you know, recipe for really improving performance. I, I really do. I think, uh, I, I mean, I know that when I'm heat trained, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to say, but going into bad water, I'm always as fit as I can possibly be. But then the icing on the cake is, is adding in the heat training and, I mean, I, I'm what, almost a month out from the race now, and I feel as fit as freaking. I can't believe it still because I've been able to, you know, recover completely. So, but I still had that residual fitness. My run today, I just finished a 16 mile run. It was effortless. I mean, it's 92 degrees outside. I barely sweat. I mean, I just, I, I still feel so tr- tremendously fit. And my heart rate has been low. My heart rate was 40 yesterday morning. It, it, and everything's like perfect right now. So I think that, that that's kind of the tip of the spear is that, that heat yeah. training. I really think that's the new frontier for all athletes. No, that, and that, that makes sense. Uh, some of the preliminary data that we've seen out there suggests that some of that upregulation with the heat shock proteins lasts for weeks after, after uh, you know, heat training. So that, that all yeah. makes sense what you're saying. Now, to kind of shift gears a little bit. For those of uh, our audience members who don't exactly know, the Badwater 135 takes place in Death Valley in the hottest month of the year, July. So temperatures are, you know, routinely exceeding 120 degrees Fahrenheit. How do you and your team prevent heat exhaustion and things like heat stroke during an event like this? And have you ever suffered a heat related illness yourself? I would say that my first and second years I did, and it manifest as gastrointestinal distress. I never, you know, like lost my thermoregulation. I never, you know, got, you know, goose pimples and, you know, was in shock and hypotensive and all that stuff and, you know, had altered sensorium. But I know that anytime I start getting bloated and I can't 
you know, have gastric emptying. I just, I just can't absorb anything. Then I need more sodium. So it's, it, it's fluid electrolyte nutrition is so key. And then all the obvious stuff, you know, use of ice, stopping when you need to get out of, get out of the, out of the heat. But you know, that to me, that's not that as beneficial because once you get back out there in the elements, you're going to start burning up again. So you have to, you know, you have to wear wicking material um, in the heat of the day, your crew has to spray you down for evaporative cooling. Um, you know, I, I carry water bottles in each of my hand with ice cold water, not so much to drink, but because of the, the vasculature of the, uh, what's the, that arterial on the, the palm, you got so much blood, so I can't remember this little, Yep. Yeah, not not the circle of Willis, but there's another. Thing, but there's so much vascular. <laughs> well, you got to keep that cool too. <laughs> That's exactly exactly right. radial and ulnar nerve. But yeah. you got, I mean, yeah, they're, they're radiators. Your hands are radiators, and then you know you put. You, you, I put ice down in my in my junk, you know, because the femoral artery and femoral vein are down there, you know, mm -hmm. um, under my hat, you know. Of course, I wear an ice bandana. It's got a, the, the pocket, and you put ice in that one in the front, one in the back. So, I mean, you're, it's, you use your whole body as a radiator, basically, to try to dissipate heat. But uh, fluid electrolyte nutrition is just so important. It's just, and you can't fall behind out there. You just really can't. And sodium, sodium, sodium. Well, that's a perfect segue into our, our next question, more on sodium. Uh, as, a, you know, somebody's running an ultramarathon, you obviously have to consider the possibility of exercise-associated hyponatremia. That's something yep. that, you know, it's rare, but it can happen. Um, and it's life-threatening. The American College of Sports Medicine recommends that endurance athletes consume 300 to 600 milligrams of sodium per hour while exercising. Endurance athletes can produce up to two liters of sweat per hour, which may contain 500 to about 1,900 milligrams of sodium per liter. Yep. What is yep. your approach to sodium and electrolyte replacement during ultras? Yeah, great. That's a great question. For me, if I start having gastrointestinal distress, I feel bloated. And I'm not passing gas and I'm just burping a lot. And my belly actually is becoming distended. I start taking more sodium. And uh, a couple of years ago, when it was exceedingly hot early in the race, it hit me early. And I think a couple hours in a row, I'm not exaggerating. I took 2,000 milligrams, two grams of sodium, three hours in a row because I had fallen behind. And like magic, my belly went down. I started farting. I started right. uh, being able to absorb. I mean, I was, you know, I was having flattest. I mean, it was, everything was working. Now, I don't know if that's the case for everybody. I can't hundred percent explain the physiology behind it, but I know that those sodium, uh, potassium, ATPase pumps in the gastric mucosa and the duodenum. I mean, they, they needed sodium. They were like, give me sodium, give me sodium. So we can transport glucose and fluids, you know, across the mucosa. That's my theory. I'm sticking to it because it worked. Oh, it's clearly worked five times. Yeah. 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 How often are you eating as well? Yeah, my main source of calories is fat, bacon, trail mix, guacamole, and then my secret weapon is actually chocolate and sure, you know, those little nutritional bottles. Yes. To me, they're tasty. You can mix them half and half with Coke. Uh, I know that may sound disgusting, but you know, <laughs> I love it. They got vitamins. They're tasty. They can be cold. They're in a little bottle. You got a screw tap if you don't drink the whole thing. Fat, sugar, and protein. Ultramarathon are best friends. Dang. I like that cocktail. Yeah, that's a pearl. Wow. That's, yeah. Yeah. Pro tip. Man. Yeah. That works for me. I mean, you know, everybody's different. You know, you have to use that stuff in training to find out if it works. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, no, nobody's going to show up at, at an extreme race having not tried stuff. It's like, you don't wear brand new shoes in a, in a race. Right. So same True. thing with your fluid electrolyte nutrition. You got to, you got to get that stuff dialed in. 
How many pairs of shoes did you go through? Three. Three? Mm -hmm. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, mostly because of, you know, edema. I go up a half size about every 30, about every 40 miles or so. Wow. Yeah. And are you actually running or are you more like walking and maybe running as you get to a downhill? That's a long way to run, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. No, there's, there's a lot of walking, but I really try to minimize it. You know, a, a slow run is way faster than a fast walk. You know, the key to a really, you know, I call it gold medal performance is to minimize stopping because, you know, that just plump, that just drops your average speed. I mean, so much. You just got to try to minimize your stops and just keep moving. You do as much as you can while you're moving. I know this is more of a performance topic as opposed to a physiology topic but you know you, you try to try to uh pee while you're walking you try to mm -hmm. eat while you're walking you change clothes while you're walking you know you you communicate with your crew what you'll need the next time as opposed to sitting in the chair and say okay at the next stop i want this i want that obviously you you keep a very tight mental game to do the things you do and i think yes. perhaps and correct me if i'm wrong one of the things that probably helps is your background as an emergency physician, having a master's degree as well in exercise physiology. How do you think that unique background gives you an edge when you're racing? Because you may be clued into things other racers aren't clued into when they're feeling, uh, you know, a certain way out there on the race course. From a mental standpoint, I struggle uh, because I think emergency doctors, it's, it's a career that prepares us worst mentally to do ultra sports, uh, extreme ultra marathons, mm. because we are impatient. I think I, I don't know about you guys, but I would assume that you're impatient. I'm very impatient. We, we're, we don't want people. We don't want grandma telling us about, you know, what she had for dinner last night. I mean, no, give us the facts, I, man. Come on, let's go. I don't want to hear. You know, we ask a yes, no question. We want no. a yes or a no. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> but in, but in ultra marathons, you know, you have to slow down your mind. You can't speed up time. You can only, you could only, you can't change your perception of time. You really, I mean, you can't change time. You can only change your perception of time. Mm. So it's, so as an ER person, our, our mentality is go, 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 go. But in ultras, you have to let the race come to you. You just have to be patient, be patient, be patient. And so that I really struggle with that. I've gotten better, but I, I, for so many years, I was always thinking how much further, how much further, how much further. And I would do the math in my head. Okay. If I do 15 minute miles, okay. I've got 12 miles to go three hours, yada, yada, yada. You can't do that. You have to live in the moment. And that's very, a very big challenge for me. So I hope I didn't over answer that question, but yes. from a mental no, standpoint, that, that's, that's, that's where it's at. Old. That's spot on. And on the other hand, do you feel that doing ultras has actually enhanced your clinical practice? Probably not, to be honest no. with you. <laughs> well, mentally, no. Okay. It's still grandma. Yeah. Hurry up. Yeah. Matt yeah. Locke. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I like to, I mean, this is going to sound really cocky, um, but um, you know, ER doctors by nature are pretty freaking confident. You know, I mean, you cannot yeah. feel unconfident starting a shift. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I feel, I know I can't, but I feel like I can save anybody, anybody. That's my mentality. It's like, you know, a, a football player, they're, they're going to a game. They tell themselves, we're going to win this freaking game. They might not, but they tell themselves that. So you got to be confident. So to answer your question, I would say that as a result of all the suffering that I've experienced, you know, the, 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 the races that I've endured, I feel invincible. And I feel like nothing can break me. I really do. I tell, tell myself that into a shift, no matter how miserable the shift is, how many sucky patients I get, you know, how many bad, how much bad news I have to deliver to people. 
I'm not going to be broken. I'm still going to be the best freaking doctor I possibly can. I'm going to, you know, be quick. You know, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to be freaking invincible. And so I would say that may be the only thing that has carried over from my ultra career into my career as a physician. Hey, Russ, no, that is actually pretty interesting because we talk about wellness and people burning out. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wonder if doing these extreme sports, ultra marathoning, doing bad water actually is a panacea against burnout. You burn out there so you don't yep. burn out. I think you nailed it. I think you, that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I agree. hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm sure everybody is wondering after five successful finishes at Badwater and various other ultra marathons and ultra events, what is next for the ultra doc Russ Reinbold? Hmm. Well, you heard it here first, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive. I'm going to do another winter ultra. Um, I thought this kind of was the, the, the end. I was going to ride off into the sunset, but Guys, I can't shut it off, man. I just can't. I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> of course you can. No, that's the answer I wanted to hear. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm not doing bad water again. I've you know I've done it six times. I the thing is is it's there's a lot of guys that want to get in, and you know when veterans keep snatching up these 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 uh, slots, you know it makes it hard for people who really want to get in and are, and are qualified to get in to do it. And I mean, if there's 50 veterans doing it every year, that means there's only 50 new people coming into that sport to into the Badwater. It's such an epic event that I think we got to share the love. I know that sounds kind of, you know, kumbaya, ooh, all that stuff, but, but you got to give other people a chance and it's a freaking hard race, man. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, it's not just doing the race, but the preparation and the logistics and it costs so expensive, you know, it's kind of an underwritten rule that, that the runner pays for all the expenses of their crew you know, I, this year, past year, I had two guys come over from Greece, man. It's, I mean, mm. it's expensive. I flew yeah. them over and you got to get rental cars and hotels and food and all that stuff. So no, I'm, I'm done with bad water, but I, I probably will work medical next year. Maybe I'll see you guys out there. If I'm not on somebody's crew, I got three guys that want yeah. me to be on their crew next year. So I may wimp out and say, sorry, guys, I got to work medical. I don't know. That might be my cop out. So I don't have to say no, to, you know, to them. <laughs> oh, right, right on. Well, well, let's, let's put this out there. If uh, Dr. Daryl Macias ever decides to run, would uh, you be part of his crew? Ah, I'd love to. I'd be honored, man. I'd be honored. I'd, I have to say though, man, it's, I, I'm, I'm like, a lot of tough love, man. You're not going to be getting any hugs from me. I'm That's what we need. That's do what I'm it, talking about. It. The oilier you are, the better it is. That's perfect. Yeah, Give no. me uh, quick insights on doing the cold ultras. That's something I don't know a lot yeah. about. And I think that's kind of cutting edge. Any quick thoughts on yeah. that? Russ? Yeah, I think I think those are going to uh, become much more popular. Uh, Bad water is, you know, kind of kind of sexy right now. I mean, it's really becoming a highly coveted race to do, believe it or not. Um, but to me, cold weather races are where it's at not taking anything away from bad water and other, you know, the really hard races, hard rock and, and yeah. uh, Wasatch front. And I mean, all the, all the really hard race, uh, you know, mountainous races at altitude, cold weather races are freaking hard, man, because, you know, I, I, because you just can't make any mistakes. There's no margin for error. I mean, if, if you miscalculate, you know, you, you lose a glove or, you know, you don't eat enough or, you know, you don't have good foot care. I mean, you get frostbite or hypothermia and become altered. You get altered out there. You're all by yourself and you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's no help for 30 miles, a 30 mile radius. 
And yeah. so bad things can happen. And if you get cold, you know, a, a common question that I'm, that I'm asked, and I'm sorry if I'm running long too, running long oh, here, no. but a, a common question that I get is, what do you think is harder, uh, you know, a really cold race or a really hot race? And hot races are hard, but to me, cold races are harder for many reasons, but primarily because in the heat, when you stop, you cool down and things get better and safer. Out yeah. in the cold, when you stop, you get colder, things get worse. So you have to keep moving. If you can't keep moving, then what do you do? You can, there's only one thing you can do, and that's crawl in your sleeping bag and just cry and pray for help. You know, and so, so, so to me, because, I, because I've, you know, I've conquered bad water, you know, to me, the, the, the next frontier of the challenge that I like is, is uh, the winter ultras. I've done, uh, there's a, a race called the Yukon Arctic Ultra that I've, I DNF three years in a row. It's, they have a 300 mile and a, and a 430. And I've not DNF'd all three years. And it's, it's, it's a long story as to why. But I did finish Iditarod Trail Invitational, which is a 330 mile race on the Iditarod dog sled course. I did that two years ago and I finished that and it really did really well. But this next race that, I'm, that I think I'm going to do almost positively in February, it's in Canada and it's uh, 380 miles, and it's, but it's on ice road. So I can actually run it. I do better in races. I can actually run as opposed to just power walk, but you still pull a sled and you have to sleep outside and cook all your food and all that, but it's on an ice road. So um, the winds are horrific though, you know, 20 to 50 mile an hour, mile an hour crosswinds that sometimes blow your sled, you know, sideways and you're just walking sideways and it's just a total software fest. And I can't freaking wait to do it. <laughs> I don't know though, man, you know, guys, I'm 57. I don't know how much of this I got left in me. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to, I, like I said, I, I just, it's, I'm struggling with trying to shut it off. I really am. Right on, man. Well, you're definitely an inspiration for us and you'll be an inspiration for those listening. Definitely. Good. Thank Great. You. Thank you. Well, I'm a big yeah. fan. I mean, I, you know, if, if I could turn back the clock 20 years, I'd probably do a fellowship in wilderness medicine. I really do. I think it's so cool. You guys are my peeps, man. I mean, you know, we get along. I hate to use the term, but you know, you guys are part of my tribe. So hey, right. tribe on, you know, yeah. and you know, Daryl is the program director down here at UNM. So, you know, oh, yeah, it's never too late. Yeah, right? I, I, I talk I, offline about I think, that. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get me in the fellowship and I'll be your uh, crew captain at Badwater next year. Wink, oh, wink. I, there I we love go. that. Yeah. Winky dinky, baby cakes. <laughs> awesome. Ross, no, hey, I, thanks so much for your time. We really yeah, appreciate we it. Totally. Oh, yeah. We'll take it easy and uh, we'll certainly be in touch. Take it easy. What's that? <laughs> don't take it no nick you can't say that to an er doctor and an ultra marathoner it's that's not gonna we don't we, i didn't even hear what you said musical track by chill hop music that'll do it for this edition of the wilderness medicine podcast this is a production of el severe so be sure to fill out the cme questions be safe get educated and have fun outside and please contact us for further questions and until next time.